What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Our approach to tackling coronavirus is to prepare for the worst and work for the best. You need a totally different style of leadership. It's not enough to have a plan. You need to be testing, testing, testing. Britain and the EU, do they want to be seen as locking horns on an issue such as a no-deal Brexit when the economy is going to be suffering and people's lives are going to be facing so much disruption? Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster this Monday, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. Now, the Prime Minister is facing something of a backlash this morning after announcing his plans to ease the UK lockdown. The government's going to ease some restrictions, very much a step-by-step process, some school classes potentially returning in June. The Prime Minister also said Britons who cannot work from home should go to work today, but they should refrain from using public transport. But then critics, including opposition leader Keir Starmer, say the new policy lacks clarity. What the country wanted was clarity and consensus, and I'm afraid we've got neither. Uh, This statement raises as many questions as it answers, um, and we see the prospect of England, Scotland and Wales pulling in different directions. It's a big gap here for the government to make up. And at the same time, business leaders are warning of a recipe for chaos over the return to work call. The British Chambers of Commerce saying clear guidance on PPE, social distancing and government support schemes is vital. We'll to talk about this. Joining us now, I'm very pleased to say, is James Sunderland, Conservative MP for Bracknell. James, welcome to the programme. Thank you for being with us. Um, let me just say to you, if, if I want to go and visit my elderly mother in Dorset and I'm in Surrey, Am I now allowed to jump in a car, go down and see how? I mean, can one actually say what the rules are at this point? Well, I think the rules are pretty clear cut. I think that uh, we're in a period of lockdown. Of course, the announcement yesterday was that there was some um, easing of the restrictions and the regulations. So uh, I I think we should take that in the spirit intended. In terms of the question, I I would certainly say that um, it is not currently possible to... uh, to travel to see family. And, and again, the message this morning was, was not clear on, on GMTV. But the bottom line is, this is about not passing the virus on. So it's about social contact, not necessarily movement or activities. So would it be possible to see family if you then social distance once you meet up? Well, again, I think at the moment that, um, you know, we have got these restrictions in force. Um, I think we've had a slight easing of those. Those who need to go back to work. Um, clearly, sport unrestricted. And there are activities that we can now do. Um, but at the moment, the guidance, in my view, is quite clear that we shouldn't be socialising um, with people, with families. Um, and that if there is a need to go and see people, then we must maintain that distance between members of different households. But again, I mean, the government said, well, Boris Johnson said last night, people who can't work from home should go back to work. So does that mean now that anybody in that category should be back wherever they are, in offices or whatever it is? It's just an open season for people to do that? 
Well, I don't think it's an open season. I think that ultimately the, the, the same measures are enforced in the sense that if you can work from home, you should and must work from home. But for those who can't work from home, there is now an opportunity to go back to work. But of course, those who need to go back to work or who wish to go back to work need to follow those guidelines and those restrictions in the workplace. And there's guidance coming out today, I think it's two o'clock today, that addresses that issue. And how are these people going to get into work? I'm thinking particularly about big cities where many people are reliant upon public transport and they're being urged not to take it. A lot of people don't live within walking or cycling distance of their workplaces. Indeed, many people don't have a bike. How are they going to get around that? Again, I mean, there, there is no ideal solution here. And of course, so there's lots of grey in between the black and white. But the way that I read it was that, uh, you know, if you can get into work, please use the means at your disposal. Clearly, the preference is cycling um, and for walking if you can, if you're, if you're um, you know, short enough in terms of distance. Clearly, we can use our cars if we have to. Um, and for those who have no other opportunity um, in terms of having to use public transport, then again, we must do what we can to maintain that distance and to keep safe. But Jared, it's not just, I guess, people who are using the transport, people who are providing the transport, because many of them uh, feel, clearly, that they haven't been given the kind of guarantees they need of their own safety. And in statutory terms, of course, they're not obliged to work if they feel there's a threat to their health or safety. I mean, have a listen to this, because uh, the unions have been talking about it, National Union of Rail, Maritime and Transport Workers, indeed. Uh, Mick Lynch, the General Assistant General Secretary, spoke to us this morning, and he said he was urging his members to refuse to work where safety was compromised. As companies get the message that they should encourage their workers to come back, they will be contacting people today and tomorrow, and by the end of the week, we could have a big upsurge in numbers, and we will review that, and if necessary, we are still able to ballot people if they're in unsafe situations, and uh, strike action is a possibility. We would rather have discussions uh, on a controlled system with a national plan about getting the country back to work when it's safe. In the absence of that, we may have to consider our position. So that was Mick Lynch, the RMT Assistant Secretary General. So James, I mean, you could have a transport strike on your hands in addition to everything else. Well, I think that's entirely possible. It's unlikely. I mean, what I would say to you is that clearly the government cannot be definitive on every aspect of our lives. I mean, at the moment, central government is running um, policy. It's easy to blame central government. But I think that what we've got in place is a broad you know, framework of arrangements which we need to sort of um, you know, define and abide by. And my personal view is that actually people need to take responsibility themselves to stay safe what they need to do is make sure they maintain the distancing. Um, and what I would say is that, you know, the cabinet is clearly split right now between those who feel that we have to lift the restrictions to get the economy going, get people back to work, get kids back to school. Um, but also, of course, we need to keep people safe. And my personal view is that the current, um, you know, the current policy and the easing last night does go some way to meet both sides of the equation. And I think it's about pragmatic application of the new rules rather than necessarily the media seeking to be definitive what we can and what we can't do. But James, you say that the government has to keep the public safe, but then you say that the people have to make up their own minds to an extent. Does that not push, in a sense, the blame onto the people if the situation gets worse? Once the government is taking a step back and putting it to the people and saying, look, interpret these uh, as you will, that really sort of pushes the burden of blame, right? I don't think it's about blame. I don't think the government's blaming anybody. And I think what the government's trying to do is trying to sort of, you know, it's trying to 
polling this morning from UGov is saying that the population is pretty 50-50 split on this at the moment. There are those who insist that we must keep lockdown in its current guise. Um, and, of course, there are others who insist that we go back to work and, and get the economy going. So the government's in, a, in a, almost a no-win situation. But what I would say is this, and this is a really, really important point. The government cannot control every aspect of our lives. We, as people in the UK, must take a certain responsibility for how we behave and what we do. And ultimately, in my humble view, it's about the distancing that's necessary to ensure that the virus does not pass on from person to person. And therefore, yeah. that's how we need to you know, implement these guidelines and act accordingly. Well, James, I mean, let's move on perhaps to the messaging in all this, because the reason we're having this, this argument here is, is because in many ways, and I think you might admit this heart, head, hand on heart, the government hasn't been as clear perhaps as it could be. I mean, even the, the messaging has not been great. This uh, uh, snap YouGov poll, you mentioned polling earlier, three in ten Brits say they know what uh, the uh, be alert, stay alert, what that actually means. Um, they're saying it's clearly not something a lot of people really have a handle on. Yeah, I mean, I think, to be candid, I mean, I would have probably used stay apart or something else. Um, I mean, alert to me as an expedition man is a sort of, you know, it's a sense of heightened awareness of what's going on around you, which is probably not wrong. What I would say is that the word unprecedented is often used and probably overused, but there is indeed no precedent for this. But the government has had to feel its way, as we all have. Um, you know, there is no right or wrong here. There's no definitive answer on, on what we should be doing. So I think a gradual easing is the right thing to do, and asking people to use their common sense and to stay alert is not necessarily wrong. But if this is unprecedented and we, we can't all be epidemiologists, why then put it to the people to make their own decisions? People are just not well enough informed to decide how to behave uh, to avoid spreading a virus that is going to affect other people possibly more than themselves. Well, I mean, again, I disagree with that. I think the advice is pretty clear. You know, it's about stay at home. Um, it's about protect the NHS and save lives. And, and all we've seen basically is a subtle shift in the last, you know, 12 hours with some slight easing of the lockdown already in place. What we're not giving people is a blank check to go off and do their own thing. I mean, this is very much a slight easing which should try and get people back to work. Um, and, of course, the other thing is that it's conditional. In other words, you know, there'll be further easing or not, depending upon how the virus reacts. In other words, whether the R rate does stay below one, you know, whether the figures still keep coming down. So it's very much, you know, it's very much um, easing our way into, hopefully, what's going to be a recovery in due course. How long do you think that recovery will take in your heart of hearts? Do you think we'll still be in this position in, or something similar in about three or four months' time? Well, I mean, I really hope not. I think the bottom line is that, that you know, people like me are frustrated. I'm working from home in the main. Um, I've got young children. Um, clearly, we want them to go back to school. The economy does need to get going again. I'm worried about the economic impact of this. I think the bottom line is that, uh, you know, the, the, the only definitive end state that we know is going to be a vaccine. Um, but that won't happen quickly. So, again, my personal view is that we're going to be in a period of uncertainty and feeling our way uncomfortably with a gradual easing, perhaps, of restrictions over a period of time. Um, I mean, this could go on for months, and, you know, I would be lying if I said it wasn't going to. 
Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Let's have a look at some of the other stories making the news in the world of politics. Where are we starting, Roger? Well, we're starting with footfall. Retail footfall, in fact, because uh, shopping destinations saw their largest ever decline in that measure of whether people are coming into your shop or not last month amid the virus lockdown, of course. Springboard's latest monthly monitor revealed a decline of unprecedented magnitude in April as the number of people at retail sites plunged by 80%. Now, the slump was almost double that in March. Footfall also shifted away from large towns and cities to smaller local shops and retail parks that made it possible for people to keep their distance from each other rather better. Unsurprising, really, isn't it? Meanwhile, we've got this contact tracing app trial going on. We spoke to the MP for the Isle of Wight last week about it. That's where it's all going on. It's been downloaded, apparently, by just 40% of people on the Isle of Wight. According to its developers, it needs to be downloaded by 60% in order to prove effective. Although we heard different things from Bob Seeley, from the MP uh, of the Isle of Wight. The app alerts mobile phone users if they've come into contact with someone with COVID-19 symptoms. Concerns also being raised that self-reporting symptoms leaves it open to abuse. And that's before we get into all the privacy issues as well. So lots to say about this app. Yes, we'll see if the blessed thing actually works, which there is some doubt about. And finally, a website that's proven successful in reducing infections, transmissions for seasonal and swine flu has been adapted in response to coronavirus. Researchers from the universities of Bath, Bristol and Southampton hope the redevelopment of the germ defence website will help change people's behaviours at home and cut infections. Suggestions include leaving packages and deliveries for up to 72 hours before you open them to reduce the the risk of infection being passed on and uh, on surfaces and obviously regularly disinfecting your home. I suppose that's what people do. But you've got something about uh, a report, Seb, that came out, well, a little while ago and perhaps should have alerted us to what might have been about to happen. Yeah, it feels rather pertinent today. The government warning in 2017 that its communications strategy in the event of a pandemic had significant shortcomings and could be confusing to the public. That's according to The Independent, which cites this leaked official report. The government was a marked official sensitive, which means we all want to know what's inside. It was drawn up by Public Health England uh, to detail lessons learned by this mock pandemic exercise we've learned so much about called Exercise Cygnus. That was in 2016. And the report warned that messages put out by the government lacked coordination and that major policy announcements during the exercise were liable to be unveiled in a haphazard manner. I'll leave no, you to collect, connect the dots there, Roger. Yes, I mean, who would have thought that, really, uh, given what's <laughs> happened in the last 
uh, few weeks, indeed, few hours. Anyway, let's move on to something actually different, which is Brexit. Uh, in case you'd forgotten, it is still on the agenda. And this week, Brussels is pushing Britain to engage in detailed talks on access to UK fishing waters. Now, according to the Financial Times, EU officials are warning negotiations on a future relationship will stall unless work on key topics advance in parallel. Now, it follows British efforts to make rapid headway on securing a deal that retains access to the bloc's aviation market and leaving fish and other issues uh, in the slow lane. Well, for more, we're joined by Anand Menon, who's Professor of European Politics and Foreign Affairs at King's College London, Director of the UK in a Changing Europe. So, Anand, welcome back to the programme. Uh, thanks for being here with us. Now, OK, just bring us up to speed. Where do we actually stand on the Brexit talks? Where are we in the process? Well, Britain has left the European Union, but it's in this phase called transition, which means that to all intents and purposes, its trade with the European Union is continuing as if it were a member state. Now, transition lasts till the end of December. We have the right, if we want, to ask for that to be extended by the end of June if we want it to go beyond December. So at the moment, the British government is saying we're not going to extend, we're going to get these negotiations finished and we're going to get a trade deal in place by the end of the year. But as you just said, the EU is starting to get a little bit frustrated because the UK is simply failing to engage on issues that the EU wants to sort out first. And fisheries is first and foremost amongst those. So what happens then if Britain stands its ground and just simply does not engage effectively in the months to come? Well, what the European Union has said is unless fisheries can be resolved, we can't turn to the other issues. Now, the EU is doing this for a very simple reason, because the UK has an advantage when it comes to the fisheries negotiations, because other member states want access to our waters. So we feel that we can use fisheries to to leverage some gains in other parts of the talk. So the EU wants to get fisheries out of the way first, so we can't do that. Ultimately, I suppose, it boils down to a game of chicken. There might be a calculation in Britain that if we refuse to do this, the EU might blink and they might say, OK, let's talk about other things. At the moment, the EU are simply saying, well, look, we're not going to blink. If they refuse to talk on fisheries, we'll just not have any conversations at all and the thing will end with no trade deal signed between the UK and the EU. Well, that's what I wanted to pick up next because it does i mean i've certainly heard myself from people on the periphery of this that actually there's a growing acceptance that an exit without agreement in early 2021 could actually be quite likely and 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 they're all kind of almost pricing that in is that true well i think a no trade deal outcome is probably more likely at the moment than it's ever been simply because this government has dug its feet in and said we're not going to ask for an extension to transition what is more if the EU asks us to extend, we're going to say no to that. And given, A, the fact that the two sides are struggling to come to agreement, and B, the fact that the pan- pandemic has slowed the negotiations down, it's very, very hard to see how they can come to an agreement by the end of December. Uh, and what about the economic impact of all this? Doesn't that form something of a shield? Because we're taking such a hit from coronavirus. The big arguments against no deal were the uh, the economic impacts of that. Is it going to shroud that or is it going to compound that? Uh, well, I think a bit of both in the sense that it might be the case that people in government are saying, well, if we can leave with no trade deal in December, the impact will be somewhat disguised by the far larger short term impact of COVID. On the other hand, there is no getting away from the fact that you are inflicting an additional shock on your economy at a time when it will just be struggling to recover from the lockdown. Doing a no-deal Brexit will have negative repercussions for 
the British economy. It will affect sort of supply chains. It will affect our rate of economic growth over the next four to five years. So it's an additional hit. But politically, it might be a hit that is slightly disguised and that might be appealing to some in Downing Street. But might it also be in some ways uh, reasonably appealing, or at least not as unappealing, in Brussels? I mean, if you think what's on their agenda, they've got this legal row going on with Berlin. They've got their own issue of finding a post-virus EU recovery plan. Is there not a point where they say, well, frankly, Brexit, even a no-deal Brexit, is kind of a second-order problem for Europe right now? Oh, no, absolutely. Brexit is a second, if not third-order issue for the European Union at the moment. But that's not the same as saying they would prefer to have no deal to a deal. No deal, remember, causes disruption on the EU side as well, and in particular areas that are exposed to trade with the the United Kingdom, be it the north of France, the Pas-de-Calais region, be it uh, Belgium, be it parts of Germany where manufacturing is traded with the UK – there will be an economic impact there, and it's one they'd rather avoid if possible. But all the indications are at the moment that it's an impact they're willing to tolerate if the British aren't willing to give ground. And what about how things are playing out in Westminster? What sort of pressure is the Prime Minister likely to come under from his backbenches? We're already seeing a lot of clamouring over the lockdown, and we saw a load of uh, clamouring over over a no deal last time. Could all of this come to the fore once more when this becomes more of a, of a pressing issue? It could do. I mean, remember, Westminster, like everywhere else, is profoundly affected in terms of the sort of The human dynamics of politics are very different during lockdown. People aren't chatting in tea rooms and, you know, gossiping in corridors. It's far harder, if you like, for people to coalesce around positions. But you do hear already some Conservative backbenchers making the case very loudly that transition should not be extended. And what's interesting is they tend to be the same people who are clamouring for a rapid end to lockdown. So it might be that a calculation is being made by the government that actually we've got to give these people something so let's give them what they want on Brexit in a hope that that, that will that will uh, calm them down and mean they don't keep putting pressure on us to lift it, the lockdown too soon. And in the same time, the, the trade-off was always we, well, the UK would get good deals with the rest of the world, uh, the US, I suppose. We do know that there are talks going on there. But that, uh, that, that trade-off, I guess, has to be put on the back burner to some extent because very few countries are going to want to make major commitments in trade terms at this point uh, with the virus hanging over them. Well, I mean, there are several aspects to that. You make a very good point. I mean, firstly, does anyone have the bandwidth to negotiate trade deals at the moment? Probably not, because everyone is preoccupied with the pandemic. Secondly, what will the attitude of major economies be towards international trade coming out of this? You hear from the US a lot of talk about the need for self-reliance on medical equipment, pharmaceuticals. So the mood might be turning against free trade, which makes deals far, far harder to strike. And the third thing to bear in mind is, of course, the pandemic has had a massive impact on international trade. And the pandemic in particular has had an impact on air freight because, of course, a lot of air freight goes on passenger planes. There are very few passenger planes flying at the moment. So it's an interesting moment, I'll I'll leave it at that, to place your faith on trade with partners that are a long way away geographically because it's far from certain what the future of trade will be between far-flung places. And finally, what do you think about European-UK cooperation over the virus, over treating it, over PPE, over the vaccine? We had that early spat around uh, the PPE procurement scheme. But do you think that the UK government is going to try and be all UK first, UK centric around this as they've been so far? Or are they going to be forced to try and work a little bit with some of their nearer neighbours? 
Well, we've already worked with our nearer neighbours, but we do it in a way that disguises the fact. So if you think about the pledging conference that was held last week to uh, raise funds for research into a vaccine, that conference was initiated by the president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen. But you wouldn't have known that, judging from the coverage here. This was Britain co-hosting a pledging conference. So the, the politics and optics of this are that Britain wants to be seen to be doing things by itself. What I would say, though, is, If we end up leaving transition with no trade deal at the end of the year, and if that ends up with mutual recrimination between us and the European Union, cooperation down the line will get far harder. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher-level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.